Welcome to episode 182. Today, we learn about teaching and supporting newcomers. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Let me read you the back cover description of the book we're going to cover today. Learn how to best support English learners and address the needs of newcomers. This professional book provides step-by-step -step strategies for teachers of ELs. Written by Dr. Eugenia Mora Flores and Stephanie Dewing, this book offers practical tips to help teachers bring English language instruction into any classroom. With this meaningful resource, teachers will meet English learners' diverse needs and make newcomers feel safe and welcome. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited and honored to have Drs. Stephanie Dewing and Eugenia Mora Flores on the podcast to talk about their new book called Teaching and Supporting English Learners. A guide to welcoming and engaging newcomers. Bienvenido a dos. Gracias. Thank you. We're glad to be here. I'm honored. Can you please each tell us a briefly a story about teaching that has really changed your practice to this day, or a story that's really stuck with you? Um. Yeah. And and it, are you thinking about? our own teaching experience or like the impact that it had on us as students with teachers. Oh, Just... it could be either. What a good idea. Okay. Um, well, for me, the reason I asked that is because, you know, one of the things about this book that was really personal and, and powerful for me is we are an immigrant family from Mexico. So growing up in the United States, our family put a lot of trust in the education system and the teachers that taught us. So I had this third grade teacher who she ended up having all my brothers and sisters and I, there were six of us. And, you know, we all kind of funneled through there. There's six of us within nine years. So she was, she, she had us quickly, but um, one thing I always remembered about her and it was, it was a moment when I realized um, now as an adult reflecting back as a teacher, like how much she got to know us as a family and how much she spent time just learning about what our family enjoyed, what our family did, the kinds of things that made us um, made us a family unit, you know. And so one thing that she did for us was, and I'm not saying teachers should do this, but she would always buy us the the class picture and because our family couldn't afford it. And so she didn't buy us individuals, but she always gave, she always made sure that my brothers, sisters, and I, when we went through her class, she got us the port the class one, you know, and we have that one. Like we all have our our little third grade Miss Mitchell, you know, port a uh, picture. And the reason that it impacted me, I think it was because there were so many times in school where I just didn't feel like I felt like oh, they know that we're poor. Oh, they know that we can't do this or the kids know this. And that was the moment where like, I just felt like everybody else in the room, you know, she, they pass out those things. It's like scholastic book orders. Everybody passes out and you don't get one or they pass out the pictures and you don't get one. And so it was this moment where it's like, oh my gosh, like I got one, like I got one. And I didn't even know until later, you know, she had bought it, but it just reminded me as I reflect back on teachers that impact I me. And there's so many stories I can tell, but like just that moment where she made us feel welcome and special in her classroom no matter what our situation was at home and and that to me was just a reminder of how important it is for teachers just get to know your kids you know get to know what what's that one little thing that can make them feel special even if it's just a hello in the morning you know like the hello how are you like just something that you know will trigger a moment of like oh, I feel so good about myself today it's all about belonging, isn't it? And yeah, yeah. Um, I there's one story I'll share. Again, it, it's so hard to pick one, but um, one of my former students came over from El Salvador, and she was one of those who was in essence on her own. She did have an older sister that was there sometimes, but she inspired me so much. Just showing up to school every day working so hard. She would leave school and go to work till late at night. 
And then she would be doing her homework. And then she would come in to school the next day and want to come spend lunch with me so we could practice. She was working at, at a restaurant um, and she really wanted to be a hostess. And so in order to move up to be a hostess, she wanted to practice English. So she, she would bring the menu and at lunch we would sit together and I would pretend to be, you know, a customer and we'd practice and run through it. And, you know, on other days she'd say, can we just read books together? And I was just so blown away by her perseverance and just her drive and her positive attitude through everything that she had been through and some pretty traumatic experiences. Um, so she in particular, well, I always think of her and, you know, we're still in touch and it's kind of fun to, to have those moments to be able to see what, you know, what was that trajectory after the classroom? So that's one of many, but one that certainly stands out to me from my years of working with this really incredible population of students. Let's first, can you help us define the audience of students who you're writing this book for and why an entire book on newcomers? Well, I'll, I'll take the part about like the audience and then I'm going to turn to Stephanie on the newcomer focus. But, um, you know, I think um, in academia, so, you know, Steph and I were at USC, uh, just amazing work and scholarship comes out of the teacher ed program and in, in not only in teacher ed, but in our school of education at USC. And that work doesn't always make it into the hands of the teacher, right? That the hands of the teacher, it makes it into the hands of the scholars or the hands of those who write the books. But, you know, our audience was really to be the people in the classrooms working directly with the children. So whether it was the classroom teacher, the um, support provider, like the coach at the school site, the um, parent liaison, the, you know, who were the people in education that were touching directly the lives of the children in terms of their education and their academic career. So it was, as I mentioned, like those who would work with families, those who are working directly with the kids, so teachers, coordinators, you know, all that. That's our audience. Like we want the people who are living this work to be the ones that pull it off the shelf and read it and then find ways to make it part of the work that they do with teach with kids and with families. And then the newcomer focus, I'm going to have Stephanie take that because she's, she's a real expert in newcomers for us. So, you know, interestingly enough, this is the population of students that I have worked most closely with over the years. So when I hear all of these school districts you know, saying we have such an influx of newcomers right now and we're not sure what to do. My initial reaction is fantastic. That's amazing. But I do acknowledge, we acknowledge and recognize that it is challenging. You know, our background and training might be a little different, you know, versus someone who is trained as a math teacher and knows math. And then you have newcomers in your classroom and you think, whoa, wait a minute, I, I don't know what to do here. So, um, you know, we wanted to answer that call that we've been hearing from so many of our colleagues in the field, just to say, hey, we need some help here. And there has been such an increase in, I would say, recent months and years of our newcomer student population. So this is on people's minds right now. So it felt like a good time to be able to share the stories, to be able to help in the best way that we can, those educators in the field who are asking that question of, what do I do? Um, and so, you know, obviously sharing the stories, but really thinking about what are those classroom strategies and we want to equip them and empower them to be able to say, okay, I've got something I can work with here and, and I'm going to try this out. Um, mm -hmm. So that was really a, another reason why the newcomer population is just definitely on people's minds. And there are lots of questions and kind of that, that need for additional assistance. So we were happy to, to jump in and hopefully help in the best way we can. Yeah. And if I can just add just a little bit to what Stephanie said, it, we wanted to celebrate the assets of the newcomer, right? Like, because there's so much in terms of just media and the, 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 the different messaging, you know, about immigrants and newcomers. And, you know, as Stephanie mentioned, this is a reality of what teachers are, are faced with is 
children are still children, they need to be educated. So whatever might be going in political sphere, there's a lot that impacts their education, but there's also so much beauty in what they bring and the assets that they bring as an immigrant, as a newcomer to the country, to the classroom, to their families, that we wanted to celebrate that group too. You know, we wanted to show the positives of it, how hard their lives may have been. There's so much that they are teaching us and that we can learn from them and that we can also tap into the amazing diverse assets that they bring. And we want teachers to see that too. And we want them to see that the assets, not just the needs and the deficits. Are you, so a question about newcomers, are you talking about uh, students who are new to the country or, and, or students who are new uh, with uh, beginning English proficiency or both? So basically both. We are, we really are gearing this towards that population of students who are brand new to the country. Usually, as the U.S. Department of Education defines a newcomer, someone who is born outside of the United States and who has recently arrived in the United States, usually within the last year or two, many of whom are just starting that process of developing English. Um, but we do highlight the fact that really it varies. You know, as all things language, there are so many factors that contribute to uh, those starting points in that journey of learning English. So while many of them are just starting out, there are some who have studied English in their home countries who um, are speaking English at home or with certain, you know, friend groups or family groups. Um, so, you know, we don't want to make assumptions that everybody is brand new, but there is a commonality that um, while we do acknowledge they are all new to the country, the the culture, the the school system, um, that language development piece will will vary from person to person. Got it. So new to the country. Yeah. Maybe not yeah. English. And I think that that's what we tried to capture with this book is we wanted teachers to recognize that diversity because there are those assumptions that newcomers, everybody's starting from you know scratch with English and you can't treat them all the same in your class because you can very well have students who have strong English skills, but there's other things about being a newcomer that impact their educational experience. And that's what we were hoping teachers can see that it's a book about newcomers, but in that chapter too, you can see they are so different. So we can't just have a one size fits all way of approaching how we teach them. We have to understand who they are to pick the right approaches. That's a wonderful segue to chapter two about sharing some stories about newcomers. Would you each share a story about some of the newcomers you've worked with? Gosh, it's where do you start, right? Um, this was such an incredible experience to uh, like I said earlier, to be able to interview some of my former students. Luckily, we had the chance to talk to many newcomers that either we worked with or that others have introduced us to and to ask these questions. Um, I'm thinking about a couple of students in particular. Um, I had shared a story earlier, but um, a couple who were, were highlighted in chapter two here. Um, Babakar and, and Mariama, and while they were not related, their stories were similar, both coming, showing up in my classroom at, at different times, but from Senegal. And it was so fascinating. I really do feel like I learned, as Ohenia mentioned earlier, so much from them and from all of our students um, about, gosh, so many different things. Their linguistic backgrounds were fascinating to me and how many different languages they already knew. And this is where I really got to see in real time too how those skills do transfer over into that development of English because they had already mastered multiple languages. So they were just kind of adding one on there. Um, and what really blew me away about their stories is just getting involved and being willing to to really put themselves out there. They were getting jobs. They were joining, you know, pre-collegiate. Um, I had a coworker who was trying to get everybody on the uh, cross-country ski team. <laughs> he had students from uh, from Senegal and from El Salvador and Guatemala, and all these warm climate places. I said, "Well, hey, you're in the mountains of Colorado now. Let's let's join the ski team." And they thought, "Hmm." sure about that, but sure, let's do it. 
Um, so also just really seeing how that involvement in activities outside the classroom too really led to not only the development of English, which of course is one of the goals, but as we highlighted early on in this conversation, that sense of belonging, um, having that safe place where, you know, many of them described as we had these conversations that it felt like a family and that that made such a difference to, to come to class and know I can be myself here. Um, no one's going to laugh at my mistakes. No, you know, this is a safe place where I not only get to be myself, but I do get to shine. You know, they got the chance to be the experts in, in their languages and their backgrounds. So we always made sure to make space for that in our, our classroom conversations. Um, but it's so fun, again, to be able to be in touch with these students now, and they're off changing the world, you know, and to have had just such a, a small part in that journey um, and just watching that progression happen over time of, you know, being brand new, not knowing knowing anyone, being so new to English. And as, you know, in chapter two, Babakar mentions how he admitted to trying to cheat on the initial English test. <laughs> He's like, I just didn't know a word of English, but I just felt like I wanted to do well on this test. And come to find out that what he was really doing was trying to find French English cognates which is a strategy we talk about. But in his mind, he's like, oh, I was trying to cheat. I said, no, this is a fantastic strategy to use. But from that moment to then just, you know, all of the, the involvement and making friends and, you know, becoming leaders within our class community, but really within the school as well. And then again, going on to do amazing things, you know, that just will always, touch my heart. And, you know, I'm, I'm just so honored to be even just that little blip, that small piece of that journey. Not small at all. What are they doing now? So one, um, uh, the one that I, I was talking about in particular, Babakar, he um, has then started or after he graduated, you know, has gone on to school, but he was working for a refugee resettlement organization. And so he really wanted to pay it forward and help people that were coming after him going through some of the, the same situations that, that he went through. So he was helping families get settled and making sure that they were taken care of. And also, like Eugenia mentioned, you know, helping to spread that word of the assets and strengths that our students and families are bringing to us. And so he has just been incredible in, in that respect. There was another um, Christina in this uh, chapter two, who is a very similar story. She was um, one of the things that really made a difference for her as a newcomer was having a, a mentor program. So people from the community will come in uh, to the school and just talk and open opportunities and talk about the future. And she found that so beneficial that she then now works for that same organization. It was a, an intercultural, a family intercultural resource. Uh, organization and again is helping other families like her when she first came get settled and not only survive but thrive and take advantage of all the opportunities that are out there. So it's it's just incredible to see see those stories really kind of come full circle and how it it also highlights that really one person can make a difference in people's lives. So maybe whatever that conversation was with that mentor or that particular teacher that really brought the students together, that coach, you know, the person who's saying, you're going to join this uh, ski team, <laughs> even though you've never seen snow, but we're going to do this. Those moments really do make a difference. But, uh, but the story I was going to share, and it connects a lot to what Stephanie was saying is, when this is one I personally had uh, my first grader, Maria, she was a newcomer from Mexico and she had come to this country with very, very limited English skills. I mean, it was a very, it was a new language for her. And she was always smiling though. She was always smiling. You ever knew Maria was always smiling. So it didn't matter that she didn't understand what was going on or she was lost. There was, she, it always 
struck me because she was so happy all the time. And, and then what her mom and I had arranged was that after school, she would stay and help. And it wasn't tutoring on stuff because she was actually very ahead in her Spanish literacy. She was above grade level in her Spanish literacy in school. So it wasn't that she needed a lot of help in her academics. Like in math, she was excelling, but she really wanted to build that fluency of conversation in English. So she would stay and help after school. We would just talk similar to what Stephanie, you were sharing earlier about one of the students. We would just talk like we would be getting the desk set up for the art project in the morning. We would just talk in English to each other so she could build that comfort and fluency of just, just learning to engage in the language and feel safe with it. And what I came to learn that really struck me about somebody like Maria was she left us for about a month in December because they went back to Mexico and they were working some stuff out with her dad. And I didn't know the specific details about it. So we lost her for about a month and she came back and her resiliency, her work ethic. And I think Steph, that's what you were talking about. Just the work ethic, the resiliency, the, the drive. It was so inspiring. I was like, oh my, and she came back. She's like, okay, we're meeting after school. Like we're ready to go. You know, we're other kids come back and be like, oh, what did I miss? I feel like I've been gone for so long. I feel like I'm left out. Oh no. She was just like, let's go. Let's get to this. And so I just, I see so much in these populations, just the will, you know, the will and the drive. And I think what the stories in chapter two showed us is that like their, their will, their drive, their perseverance their love for learning. Just, I, I look at my own children and I'm like, what? They, they, they don't always have that love for learning. You know, I get the, oh, I, you know, history was boring today or, oh, why do I have to do this? And then I think about Maria and I'm like, she was like, what do I learn next? What can I do next? You know? So there's this like beautiful passion and will to learn. You know, that that I feel that those stories shared with us. So so Maria's my my ongoing. And this was Maria was 24 years ago. Because she was my third, third year teaching. Yeah. And she still stays with me. You know, you talk about the impact that you know the teachers have on the kids, but those stories and and being able to remember, and I have so many little details I can remember about our conversations and just seeing her walk in the room and her mom and and it's 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 pretty awesome. We're very lucky to be in this field, aren't we? Let's talk about social emotional learning considerations for newcomers. I, I think, and I mean, I, I'll just kind of preface like a, a more global statement here, but I think that we sometimes as teachers we get overwhelmed with the academics. Like we have to take this test. We got to get them ready for their state exams. They, you know, we have to uh, cover this curriculum or these standards that we lose sight of the fact that many times when students are struggling academically, it's not always because they don't get it. It's because there's other things going on. Um, in terms of social emotional, I just want to share a quick story that's also struck with me. When I was a middle school teacher, I had a student who, brilliant, and then she just stopped trying. I, like she just stopped trying, and I was like, "What's going on with Christina?" Like I'm not sure what's going on. So you know, I was just going through the motions, right, as a teacher at the time. And I was like, "Okay, let's get to the next chapter. Let's do our literature circles," you know. And then I finally one day said, "You know, I need to just talk to her and see what's going on." So I came to find out, and I still get a little teary when I tell this story. But um, she had found out that her mom had a terminal illness. And so it had impacted her very well. So, you know, it had impacted her so much that she just like school was not important to her. It wasn't a priority. Like her social emotional well-being in terms of her mental state, her ability to focus was not like, I don't want to be here at school. Like I want to be next to my mom. You know, I, she's, she was a sixth grader at the time. And, um, you know, to know you might lose that you are going to lose your mom. Like it wasn't a will you, she knew her, she was going to lose her mother. And so to, to remember that kids have so much going on. And I know Steph has a lot. She learned from the students about the traumas that they went through the different stories. But I mean, you know, when we think about educating a child, like you educate, you can only educate them if they are there holistically, you know, and, and that means they're, their social emotional being and social emotional is not just mental health. And I think people 
always think like, oh, we're just talking about mental health. It's a big part of it, but it's how do kids get along with each other? Are they able to work in teams together? Do they have empathy for one another? Do they understand um, different experiences? You know, there's just so much involved in social emotional, but like without that, things really couldn't strive academically, you know? So, um, but yeah, so that's just one thing that just strikes me when I think about how important SEL is to the academic experience for the kids. I'll let Stephanie add, if she wishes, I'll let you uh, tear your, uh, dry your tears. Well, you know, and it's, it's so true. Like this is the topic that, that does get us emotional because, you know, I think there are so many and it it does, it, it intersects with that chapter two, those stories, because it is the stories that, that are so powerful that, you know, oftentimes, you know, as teachers, we get so busy and, you know, like Ohenia said, we got to worry about this. We got to worry about that. But when we really take the time to listen and get to know them and get to know those stories, it's so powerful. And just asking the question, you know, you notice something is, is off. And, you know, we've talked about that sense of belonging, that, that need to feel safe. All of that is not just a, well, that would be great. It's, it's really is essential. And I think about Cassandra, who is highlighted in chapter two and how she had admitted when she first moved to the country, she was just so stressed out and anxious all the time. She stopped eating and, you know, her health really suffered. And she basically said, all I really needed or wanted was for someone to ask me if I'm okay. And, you know, I I get the tears too, and I get the chills and I think it sounds so simple you know, to just check in. So like Ohinia, when you were checking in, you know, with that student and because you noticed something was off and that's really what she was needing was somebody to notice and say, you know, something doesn't seem, you know, something seems a little off. Are you doing okay? What do you need? Is there anything I can do to help? Sometimes students will be open to having that conversation and some maybe not, maybe they're not ready at that point in time. But asking the question is is a huge deal to our students. Um, you know, I think there, there's just so much to it. But I think about, you know, our day-to-day in what we're doing in the classrooms. And like Ohenia mentioned as well, when it comes to working with other students and what is that dynamic like? And I think about Mariama in the book, too, who uh, shared with us that when the teacher said, hey, just go ahead and work with someone, that brought about a lot of anxiety because she's new and she just felt alone and isolated. And, you know, how often do we do that? Not thinking about it. It's best of intentions. Like, yeah, we want students to be able to work with who they want to work with. But for someone who may not have those connections yet, um, we always want to add that yet, right? Because we know they will. But part of our role is to foster those connections. Um, and so that really stood out to me too. Those simple little things we can do of, hey, Mariama and Cassandra, why don't you two work together on this project? And, you know, it, it can be that purposeful pairing and grouping to find that right mixture. And maybe we don't get it right the first time, but you know, having that in the backs of our minds, you know, those little things we can do, just checking in, acknowledging, I see you, I hear you, um, you matter, I believe in you. Um, That is really, that has to happen before we can get to the academics. Um, We have to set up that type of environment. And, you know, the, the final thing I'll mention too, that's mentioned in here, because this still makes such a lasting impact on me, was the day that I'm with my newcomers class and we have a lockdown drill, which unfortunately that is, that's common practice because it has to be in today's day and age. But I didn't know it was coming. And so as many of our students are coming from traumatic situations, um, the, the it was certainly a trigger because even though it's a drill, We have to turn off the lights, lock the door, hide in the corner, not say a word. Like this is really triggering for so many of our students. And, you know, the thought of now my my safety feels threatened and I I don't know what to do with this. You know, I had a student actually admit that she was afraid of being shot on her way to school. And so then we're going to go into this this drill here. And it's like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be safe here. 
So that was another thing that made me realize, again, it's just those, those daily experiences. So right after that, I went straight to the office. Like I need to know when all of these drills are happening so I can prepare. We can have maybe a calming activity or something quiet where we're still, you know, we're still participating in the drill, but in a way that's maybe a little bit less anxiety inducing and triggering. So, um, yeah, it really is the key to almost everything that we're doing in the classroom. That's that um, the heart of making sure our students do feel safe and that sense of belonging, uh, first and foremost. Are there any strategies that you could share, both share that we could use to get to know kids or create a safe space for them, a welcoming space for them? One of my favorites is one that I had learned and then just kind of tweaked it and shared it with teachers because I even use it at USC in my freshman course is I wish my teacher knew. It's like one of my favorites because it, it allows you to be vulnerable as a student without feeling vulnerable, right? So the way that that strategy works is simply, you know, you hand the students each a post-it and you just say to them, what's something you wish that I knew? Anything, anything about you. They don't have to put their name on it. And we have a poster board up and then they just come up and at some point they just put it up on our, I wish my teacher knew. And then I go through and I read them all and I get a sense of like, oh, these are some interesting things I'm going to get to know about my students. And I've used it even with my freshmen at USC. And it's, it's interesting how they'll open up when they think like, okay, I don't have to put my name on this. I can just say what I want to say so that my teacher's aware. And maybe they'll feel comfortable, hopefully, opening up, you know, to the teacher about it further. But in, you know, even in my undergrad class, I had a student that a couple of different things that they wrote. One had said, um, I wish my teacher knew that it's hard for me to get through a lot of readings and I need to reread things. So I'm going to really struggle to keep up with the readings or something like that. And another one, but I wish my teacher knew I was an undocumented student. And I, you know, so like you just, they, they just open up and then I look at it and I think, okay, I know this about my class, right? So how am I going to approach teaching them in a way that is respectful of what they opened up about that is vulnerable for them? And so I want to make sure that they don't feel threatened that they've said it. Like, I'm not going to say, oh, I know that was you, Stephanie, that said that one. So you're a document. I would never a student. So this feels safe for them. And what was so awesome um, just to see how the student felt was at the end of that class. And it's a class that's about learning about the next experience in the United States. He wrote in his final exam at the bottom, he said, I'm proud to be undocumented again. And, you know, to, to just see like, like somebody was talking about the full circle, like that he opened up and shared this. And obviously it was coming from a place initially where he didn't feel safe. He didn't feel like he wanted to share that with anybody to then say, I'm proud about it again. I thought, okay, this is the kind of experience we want for them to feel. And it's surprising how much teachers learn. That's why I love this strategy too, because teachers learn so much and they're like, wait, why didn't they tell me this? Um, one of the samples that we have in the book from a third grade, I think it was a third grade class, third or fourth grade class, the teacher was sharing with me that she was reading the post-its and one said, I wish my teacher knew Spanish. And the teacher's like, I'm fluent in Spanish. Yeah, like, how did they not know that? You know, what have I not done to help them realize like I'm here to support you linguistically in Spanish as well. And then another thing said, I wish my teacher knew that I was doing good in math, but I'm not keeping up. You know, and you think like, the barrier for kids to feel safe telling their teachers these things but you give them a chance to just write it you know secretly on a post-it they're like here you go I want you to know this so for me that one always stands out and when I do trainings and I talk about get to know your students it's always one that I share we have so many in the book but it's one that I say there's a lot but this one just because I've used it personally so many times and have seen the impact I really love yeah, I'll just say I love that one too. And I use that in every one of my classes now. At the end of class is kind of an anonymous exit ticket. It's always optional, but I'm 
I'm consistently surprised at how many take that opportunity to share something. And oftentimes it's similar. So you can kind of address it with the whole group. Um, but I am a huge fan also. So I'll do that at the end of my classes. And at the beginning, there's purposeful community building activities. It might be five minutes. It might be 10, depending on the amount of time you have. Maybe it's a, a personal survey of some sort. Maybe it's, let's share our favorite breakfast food. Maybe it's, hey, let's create a class playlist. And then you get a chance to, to learn those things about each other. For me personally, I have a terrible memory. So I felt like I was always <laughs> writing things down. I would have my class grids. And so I would have all my students on a grid and that was always accessible somewhere on a clipboard or notebook or folder. So then I would learn, oh, you know, this student loves, you know, salsa music. Um, I'm going to jot that down. And this student, you know, was an actor in their home country or did a lot of acting in theater. And this student is really hopes to be a, a professional soccer player. You know, so I would gather that information over time and they would build that sense of community with each other. And that's where you see that kind of family uh, spirit develop within the group. Um, sometimes it was, oh, we have this in common. And other times they give each other a hard time, but in a fun way, you know, because we became comfortable. So those community building activities, um, time well spent, definitely the I wish my teacher knew opportunities for them to share what they're thinking, what they're feeling in those safe ways are, I think, probably two of the most powerful strategies. So you spent, we spent a lot of time on this podcast to talk about uh, reaching students' hearts. Let's talk about reaching students' minds. You talked about designated EOD class. What does that look like? And can you share some strategies on how to structure that? Yeah, so, um, you know, the designated English language development is really that what we like to refer to as that protected time of day. So it's time spent specifically focused on English language development each day. This looks very different based on your setting. So for example, for our elementary classrooms, maybe this is happening within a literacy block during rotations. And that teacher gets to work specifically um, with their population of students in that process. So looking at those language goals, those strengths and assets like we talked about earlier, and then, you know, trying to continuously challenge. And there's lots of great strategies that I'm sure we'll talk about too for how to accomplish those goals. But that designated time is really specifically focused on that language development piece. Of course, content will be learned throughout. So the content and language are really inextricably linked, whether we're talking about that designated ELD or that integrated ELD. It's just in that designated time that language is really that driving force to help that, that progression over time with lots of meaningful opportunities to interact and engage across all of those domains of language, listening, speaking, reading, writing. At the secondary level, it often is its own class. So for example, if I have my newcomers class, they were with me during, let's say, second period uh, of the class day. And that was our time uh, to really focus in on that language development piece. Ohenia, feel free to jump in. Yeah, I just want to add to, to Stephanie's definition is that one thing that makes designated language time really um, effective is if students are grouped in a way that are meeting their specific language proficiency needs. So as you probably know, throughout the day, they might be mixed with all different language proficiency levels as they should, you know, students that are at more advanced levels, English dominant students, students that are still learning the language um, as a second language for the first time. So there's such a range, but during that designated time, it's to say, okay, I'm going to offer this time of day and I'm going to bring together the students that are on the maybe the spectrum of like more emerging, newer language speakers. So I can target that specific need, right? Then I have students who they probably are pretty conversationally fluent in English, but are still struggling academically with some of the demands of English in terms of different content areas. Well, I wouldn't do the same thing for them as I would for students that need to know what are the alphabet letters in English, what are the sounds that they make. They're already reading, but they're still struggling to write that 
history essay or to be able to have a critical dialogue or, or debate with somebody in English over a scientific topic that they've been given. So I'm going to do that kind of work with this group during that designated time. So it's it's important, as Stephanie was saying, that it is a time that you focus on language. I'm focusing on language. That is first and foremost. And I'm going to use all kinds of content to teach that language through, but language is my key. But on the same, at the same time, what's also really important is that they are grouped during that instructional time in a way that meets their specific English needs. So sometimes you'll have schools that will mix kids' grade levels and they'll have a time of day when everyone's doing designated time, but it's, you know, in the morning for the first 30, 45 minutes. And I'm going to take all the first, second graders who are brand, brand new to, to language because it's a small group. And I don't have a lot of first graders, but they're second graders, right? So I can mix them because I'm targeting their language needs versus their academic, um, different content area needs. We talk about in that EOD time, uh, comp establishing comprehensible input and strategies for output. Yeah, so our big strategy, and, and you know, definitely within those, there's a lot that overlap. Sometimes strategies that are good for input are good for output. Uh, but we we look at it as um, I selected strategies that make, for example, on the input side, what I'm learning accessible to kids, right? Input is like, I'm getting it, I'm getting it, right? So strategies that make what I'm teaching more accessible to students is helping them with the input piece. So when we have teachers use, and as simple as it might be, it's really powerful, you know, an image to go with the core vocabulary or um, the teacher reads aloud part of the text or the passage because that, the way I read it can give some meaning to the text uh, as well as kids that are also reading it. But then you can also see where, like Stephanie mentioned, cognates. If I'm giving the cognates, I'm trying to give them more access to what it's about. So sometimes it's not that as the newcomer, I understood everything that was just taught to me in terms of the language, because maybe I need more language skills. But as a teacher, what did I do so that the core of this lesson became accessible to the student and they felt like they can keep up and develop that understanding? Um, so on the input side, it's that accessibility, the accessibility. And this is a uh, just transition that to the output side, because some, one thing that helps with input is getting to talk to a peer, right? So if I'm pair sharing with you or with, with Stephanie, that helps me understand because maybe my peer can explain it in a way that is more helpful or maybe my intentional pairing, they were able to share a little bit of primary language so that I can access what we were talking about. Um, but at the same time, a pair share can also be an output strategy, right? So there's some that will overlap depending on how I'm using it. And, you know, well, actually some just do it naturally. So on the output side, I always say our English learners are brilliant. There's like so much up here, right? So much. And what happens is I know more up here than I'm able to verbalize, right? That's the same for all of us, I think too. Like there's so many times I'm writing an essay and I'm like, I know what I want to say. I can't figure out how to put that logically and in some way to make it sound proper in, in terms of the audience and everything. So there's so much up here that they're taking in and we can't leave strategies to that because now I need to get it out. Like I need, I need to know you're asking me to give you a comparative um, response. How do I say that? What are the words that I can use so that you know I'm making a comparison? Or if we're looking at the exact same content, we're studying animals and you asked me to compare them, it sounded one way, but now you're asking me to describe the animal, that might sound different. But then now you're asking me to prove which animal might survive in this ecosystem more than others. My language is gonna be different. So I also need to provide strategies that will support what it should output like to meet what you're asking me. You know, what are the communication needs? And then how do I successfully do that? And I always remind teachers, output strategies are not all verbal, right? We have written, we have creative strategies, like design something, create something, show me what you've learned. Graphic organizers are great. Talk about an output strategy. They've been around forever. We've all been Venn diagramming since we were kids, right? So output strategies like a, a graphic organizer, as simple as that might seem, goes a long way because for an English learner, when you look at that graphic, you said, oh, we're going to be somehow connecting things to each other. But then there's another graphic that shows things going out and you're like, wait, 
we're going to be putting something down about how things like are not connected. Maybe they're separate in some way. So tools like graphic organizers are an output strategy, sentence frames, an output strategy, paragraph, criteria charts, output strategies, you know, like help me know how to craft my thinking. And that's what the output's about. Yeah, that was answered so beautifully and comprehensively. I really don't have much to add to that because I think you captured that so well. But I, I will just add one kind of final thought to that. But, you know, we talked about thinking about strengths and assets earlier. So if we have some of that flexibility built into how can students demonstrate their understanding and their learning to us? in different ways based on those different levels of language, English language proficiency. So if we know that, let's say, you know, they have comprehended a lot, or maybe that social language is more fully developed than that academic language, can we find that way to, as Ohenia mentioned, maybe a peer collaboration or being able to talk through uh, an academic idea or concept. Um, but there are so many great ways to be able to, to do that and the hands-on, you know, obviously that visual support. So many of us, you know, we've been graphic organizing for years, um, but I also think, you know, that learning by doing and just being able whenever we can to get our hands on something and be actively engaged the great thing is, as we talk about frequently, is these strategies are really beneficial for all of our students. They are just more essential, really, for those who are in that process of, of developing English. But it's great to be able to use these strategies for all of our learners. And then as they build more of that language, uh, then we can start you know, removing some of those too. So maybe we have those sentence frames for those who need it, um, some of that first language support. But then, you know, over time, maybe they're not needing those as much. So it, it's such a fascinating process to be a part of and to witness and and to help in these, I would say, simple ways in, in a lot of yeah. cases to really maximize that benefit for our students. Yeah, if I can just add to that too, something that you mentioned earlier, Tan, about um, the integrated work, you know, the designated work. I think what Stephanie had shared earlier about, you know, Stephanie, you were saying like some teachers are just great at math. Like I'm the math teacher. I'm really great at it. Well, we wanted to empower teachers to realize that, yes, like you are the math teacher, but we still have a responsibility to teach our content in a way where students understand it and can tell us what they've learned, right? That takes language. So whether you're the chemistry teacher or the math teacher or the PE teacher, you know, we are responsible for delivering our um, standards and our content, which means there's language involved. We Language is about communication. So if I'm communicating my content and my standards to my students, then I am a, I'm also responsible for language. If I'm asking my students to show me what they've learned, show me that mathematical operation, show me how they made sense of how open and closed circuits work, explain to me why this ancient civilization fell. You know, all of those different content areas require students to tell you what they've learned, which is output, which means to Stephanie, your point earlier, these are EL strategies, but output is output. All students have to share their learning. So whether you are a uh, more, you know, non like doesn't seem like it's so language intensive discipline like ELA or ELD, we are all still responsible for helping students access, interpret, and produce language, right? And I think that's what we were trying to accomplish with those strategies in the book is like, anybody can do it. You know, it's not just the ELA teacher that this will make sense for, or the ELD teacher, math teachers, they're, 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 accessible to you too. You know, we, we want you to see that your students need the support outside of ELA and ELD. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's a wonderful way to end our podcast with our final question. We really talked about everyone is a teacher of MLs because everyone needs to teach the language of their discipline. Every discipline has its own language. What strategy have you noticed that is most essential or that helps students acquire English the fastest? We'll end with that. Mm. That's a, that's a good, I don't, I don't know if I pick one, but I'll pick, I'll pick, um, like a type, like a type of strategy. Um, I think it's output, use your language, 
you feel develop a classroom culture that feels safe. So the SEL piece is huge. And then if you want kids to become more active, successful users of a new language, they have to use it. They can't, we can't be in classrooms or watch classrooms with multilingual learners that are passively just receiving language. So strategies that have kids using the language, for me, it's like, that's when you're going to start to soar, right? And whether it's um, small group, whole group, pair shares, group work, um, create this, draw this, you know, take these and put them in an order for me, or little kindergartners grabbing the color that I call out, like you need to utilize the language and that's going to help fuel your fluency in it. For me, I would wholeheartedly agree. For me, I think building that word wealth is huge. So that vocabulary piece And I say this partly because I have seen that to be extremely effective, but on a personal level, I love vocabulary. I love teaching vocabulary. I love seeing my students use vocabulary, vocabulary games. We're labeling our whole classroom, um, finding those great ways to engage. And as Ohenia mentioned, use the language. Um, you can have contests of, you know, when to use vocabulary just to get that repetition and those meaningful opportunities um, and helping them to identify those patterns, whether it's cognates or, you know, as we help our students to see what that looks like, um, whether it is cognates or prefixes, suffixes, and they start building that word wealth and that knowledge, then you just see this whole world open up, which is so much fun to be a part of and, you know, an excellent way to really help uh, that process as effectively as it can be. Well, the book is called Teaching and Supporting English Learners. You have helped us with this podcast to teach and support our students. So, muchas gracias por tu tiempo and your scholarship. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us and for helping us spread this message. That's what you know we care most about is, is that teachers and students are impacted. So, yeah, thank, thank you so much. It's great to spread that word of you know <laughs> for our multilingual learners that you're amazing. We're so yeah. happy to be a part you of this are. process and this journey. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast. My invitation is to check out my three courses on English Learner Portal. One is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Now, on to our recap. Seems like the theme that keeps coming up again and again in all my conversations is that MLs must feel safe and welcomed at school before they're ready to learn a new language. Even if they don't have childhood trauma, learning a new language is really difficult. Therefore, we must first develop a relationship with them. However, relationships is not enough. They must have explicit, effective instruction. No matter if they are new to English or have learned English before, we have to focus on making content comprehensible and making sure that students have numerous opportunities for English output. The more, the better. The more low stakes, the better. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.